Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Before there was NSYNC or even Glee, there was the Monkees. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today we dive into the story of the original made-for-TV band, The Monkees. And later we've got new reviews of PJ Harvey and Drive-By Truckers. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. That is Month of May, one of the songs from the latest Arcade Fire album, The Suburbs, that was performed a week ago at the nationally televised Grammy Awards. That was the prelude to their winning the album of the year. A huge upset for Arcade Fire. A lot of people saying, who? What? Why? Everybody thought Eminem was going to win this award, including me. He had the biggest selling album of 2010 with recovery, 3.4 million copies and counting. He had just appeared on not one, but two Super Bowl ads the week prior to that. He had gone from pariah to this kind of cuddly celebrity, ready for his mainstream moment. This appeared to be the weekend he was going to do it, finally win the big prize from the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. But lo and behold, here comes this indie rock band out of Montreal winning the big prize. In the past, you used to have to be connected to one of the big corporations that runs the record industry, those four multinationals, in order to have any chance of winning a Grammy Award. This year we saw a huge change. 45 of the 108 categories, the winners were independent music bands. That's a huge number. Considering that independent music sells only 11% of the U.S. market, that's a pretty big recognition from the Grammy Awards. The other thing I like about the Grammys, Jim, I mean, there's a lot not to like, but occasionally they will present to a nationally televised audience and a worthy artist who gets a big springboard from that performance. And I think two things happened that night that indicate that, hey, maybe some people are going to find out about some cool stuff. The fact that Esperanza Spalding won the Best New Artist Award, I think was a, it was a major coup for not only her, but for people who love great music. I mean, yeah, Better her than Justin Bieber. Well, you know, Justin Bieber, Drake, I think I, I would have said Drake would have won yeah. that category ahead of time because he sold a ton of records and a relatively respectable hip-hop artist. But Spalding, no doubt, was the real talent here. Bass playing, singer, who had made some inroads in the jazz world, but a whole lot of people went on, a, on their Google searches immediately after that and said, who? who is this? And checked her out and said, hey, that music's not bad. 
Ditto for Janelle Monet. We've been championing her for a number of months on this show, Jim. I don't think mainstream America really knows about her yet. But, man, that performance that night blew me away. And I think a lot of other people had, had a similar reaction, like, wow, she's really good. On the heels of that performance, she and Bruno Mars announced a co-headlining tour. And I think, you know, she's finally arrived on a lot of American radar screens with that performance that night. That having been said, Greg, the Grammys may have been this much better than they were last year. And how could you be worse? A better gauge. If we are to go 50 years into the future and you want to know what the best music of 2010 is, we make this point every year. Why don't we spend more time on the Grammys? Because they don't really matter and they don't really honor the music that stands up. What does a better job? Well, the Village Voice each year still, since it was started by Robert Criscow half a century ago, does the uh, what they call the Paz and Jop poll, jazz and pop backwards, in other words. They are now polling some several thousand rock critics across the country. Used to be a mere couple of hundred. And uh, what were the top five records? in the Paz and Jop poll of, of rock critics across the country. Kanye West at number one, LCD Sound System at number two, Arcade Fire at number three, so the Grammys agreed there, Janelle Monet and Vampire Weekend. I think that's a better list to remember than the overall list of Grammy winners for 2010. Greg, that, of course, is Deep Purple with the immortal smoke on the water. A classic guitar riff, one so simple that even I can play it on guitar. And it was in the first edition of Guitar Hero, the rock video game. You know, one of the saddest things we have to do from time to time on Sound Opinions in the news segment is an obituary. And this is an obituary for Guitar Hero. Because there are no longer going to be new editions of the game produced. It was just announced. Shocking many people. We've talked about this game and its ilk several times on Sound Opinions. We've been skeptical. It seems to me that going to the basement with a guitar and an amp turned to 11 and playing that riff by Deep Purple, that is a thing of power and joy. Mm. Playing it on a little plastic controller, following the lights, doing it in time, following the numbers, I don't know. Okay, it's a game. Fine. We've had people disagree with us. They say that kids are being introduced to music through this game. That's a fine argument, but the fact of the matter is the manufacturers of Guitar Hero are no longer going to put out new editions because they've hit the wall, the fatal flaw in this. Once you buy the console for about 150 bucks and you get the plastic controllers for drumsticks and, and guitar, you don't have to buy it anymore. The sales reached a staggering $2.5 billion by the end of 2010 over the life of Guitar Hero. But you have to put that in perspective. Another game called uh, Call of Duty Black Ops, that went on sale back in November. In six weeks, it made a billion dollars. A third of what Guitar Hero made over its whole lifespan. If you go back between 2008 and 2009, sales of music video games in general across the board were falling 46%. Rock Band is trying to stay ahead of the curve here. They are putting out soon a Fender Squire Stratocaster guitar, a real guitar that also can interact with Rock Band the game. But things aren't all rosy for them because Rock Band the Beatles edition was supposed to break all records in terms of sales and it it fell far short of expectations. What is selling musically in the video game world? Right now it seems to be these dance games, Dance Central. You can dance along with Lady Gaga, you can dance along with Salt and Pepper, follow these complicated choreographed dance moves. Those are hotter now than games where you actually play the music. 
Listening to sound opinions, and that, of course, is the immortal theme from the Monkees, the television show about that wacky band in the '60s, comprised of three Americans: Mickey Dolenz, Michael Nesmith, and Peter Tork, and the short but lovable Englishman <laughs> Davy Jones. You know, it just makes you smile just saying it, right, Greg? A lot of people were laughing at the Monkees from the minute they debuted in 1966, saying. This isn't real, man. This isn't our youth culture. This is an obvious attempt to rip off the popularity of the Beatles, make a television show out of what was magical about a hard day's night. Uh, yeah, all of that is true. But they sold 50 million records. These guys, whether you want to consider them quote-unquote real musicians or not, had an incredible catalog of songs written by some of the finest songwriters of the 60s and 70s. Sure, there is a big component of business to the story of the monkeys. Who were the puppeteers pulling the strings? You had Don Kirshner acting as the music supervisor. You had Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider developing the uh, the band, really, for television. They were made for TV, but then they took on a life of their own. There is a complicated and fascinating story about the band as business, about the band as music. And to take us through all of it, we have Monkey Superfan Eric Lefkowitz, who wrote a fine book, Monkey Business, The Revolutionary Made-for-TV Band. Eric, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you very much. Day one, there's an idea for a television show. Obviously, we want to put together a band uh, and put them on TV, kind of like those Beatles folks, running around having all these adventures, trading witty repartee, indulging in some slapstick, and in between playing songs. You know, that's your classic model, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. The Beatles are the template here. And uh, there really hadn't been an American answer to the Beatles when it came to a phenomenon. You had the the Beach Boys, the Love and Spoonful, great American bands, but none of them were truly a phenomenon. And that's what uh, Schneider and Rafelson were setting out to do is like create a phenomenon for television and also marry it to music, which is really easier said than done when you think about it. It is uh, really hard to crank out a couple songs per week and sitcom uh, episode per week. Uh, It's amazing that they actually pulled it off. Well, the timing was great, too, because you mentioned the Beatles, the huge influence that they had and the huge impact. And you talk about this mania gap in the book. Where do all these teenagers and preteens go to scream now that the Beatles have become more sophisticated as a pop band? They're no longer the lovable mop tops. They have moved on from that image that we saw in Hard Day's Night and on the Ed Sullivan Show in 64. And into this gap stepped the monkeys in 65, 66, 67. Well, that's right. They really straddle an interesting era of the monkeys because uh, the first music is really brill-building pop. And by the end, they're like full-blown psychedelic, you know, uh, crazy rock band actually playing their instruments. So they straddle the era. They connect a lot of things together. It's amazing how many... Musicians are connected, for example, to the Monkees from uh, studio musicians, tremendous players, you know, Glenn Campbell, James Burton, just fantastic players. 
to uh, their songwriters, to Jimi Hendrix, who opened up for them briefly on tour. Eric, when you say Brill Building Pop, you literally mean some of these people who were writing songs for the Monkees were Brill Building veterans. Basically, all the songs were coming through Don Kirshner, also known as the Golden Ear, <laughs> most notably Carol King and Jerry Goffin. And uh, Don, Don lorded over a stable of songwriting talent that was astonishing, and he used it very well for the first couple of records, which were blockbuster records. Though you've played at love and lost and sorrows turned your heart to frost, I will melt your heart again. Remember the feeling as a child when you woke up and morning smiled. This time you felt like you did then. There's just no percentage in remembering the past. It's time you learn to live again at last. Come with me, leave yesterday behind. And take a giant step outside your mind. It's interesting, too. He had this system set up. He was a publishing empire in himself, basically, Kirshner. So he had this factory all set up for this group, basically. Everything was taken care of. He had the producers. He had the, the songwriters. He had the TV show set up. How did they arrive on these four guys? What was it about these four guys that are over the 400 applicants that actually applied for the job? What was it about these four guys that, that made it work? Well, I think they were looking for a blend between the Beatles' characters and personalities and perhaps the Beach Boys. I speculate that Peter Tork might have been chosen because he, he looks a bit like Dennis Wilson. But basically, they were looking for uh, different slots. You have your John Lennon type, which uh, ended up being Michael Nesmith, somebody who was slightly arrogant, hard-headed character. Mickey Dolan's a bit like Ringo. They're both drummers, sort of happy-go-lucky. And then Torque is either the surfer or sort of the mystical George Harrison type. And then uh, Davey and, uh, you know, sort of matches up with Paul McCartney. Of course, you had to have a British guy in this band. So <laughs> Davey, Davey was a shoe-in. I'm forgetting my monkey's history from watching the TV shows. How did, did they ever explain why Davey Jones was in the United States with the rest of these guys? <laughs> No, it was absolutely never explained. And it turns out, talking about inside jobs, Davy Jones was really signed to this thing from the start. You could look at the series as a vehicle for Davy Jones. I want to be free Like the bluebirds flying by me Like the waves out on the blue sea if your love has to tie me, don't try me, say goodbye, I want to be free. Whatever your opinion of his talents as a rock and roller, the show was really built around Davey. He had been a star on Broadway already, and he was signed to the studio. So they were looking for a vehicle, and Davey has always been central to the Monkees. And the funniest thing is, of course, that both Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork were better singers. Nesmith would become by far the best musician. Davey was like the least talented guy. Well, I do speculate about that in, in the book. I think he's got this ineffable essence of celebrity. There's something about him. He's very, you know, eye-pleasing. He uh, has a great smile. He definitely lights up a stage. But when you come to, you know, brass tacks, Davey could be a liability. For example, on the second record, More of the Monkeys, which is their, their best-selling record, 
there are a couple of tracks that just make you, you know, run for the turntable to, to skip the track. They're just abominable. There'll be birds singing everywhere. And the wind will be blowing through your hair. I'll look into your eyes and wait for the prize. Your lips kissing mine with a love that is real. And you'll look so young and fair. On the day we fall in love, you and me. On the day we'll fall in love, you'll see. Well, it's interesting, too, that, uh, you know, they had these personalities that were in opposition to each other. There was sort of a built-in tension in the group because... Nesmith and Tork came out of more of a musical background. They aspired to be relatively serious musicians. You had Jones and Dolans coming more from an acting background, where it was more about performance and acting for them rather than musicianship, which was, you know, a low third on their list of priorities. How did they manage to even get along initially? I mean, what was it that brought these four guys together and actually allowed them to function as a seemingly charming group of guys who played off each other so well for those two years that the show was on television? That's a great question. I mean, the question is whether they ever actually did really get along. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some evidence that they never did, that they never did get along, that there was always uh, personality clashes. For example, Torque and Nesmith, as you mentioned, should have been allies, but they ended up being pretty much enemies. They were both highly individualistic, and they all were. And as for what got them through it all, I think it was the fact that there was so much talent surrounding them, and talented record producers and writers and talented TV script writers. And it's my opinion that when they lost that support system later on, uh, that's where it all kind of went wrong. They were really just cogs in a machine. We all have our individual favorite monkey, but really I think it's the machine that put them across. Take the last train to Pottsville and I'll meet you at the station. You can be We're going to continue talking about the backstory and influence of the monkeys after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later in the show, Jim and I are going to look at the latest record by singer PJ Harvey.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. The local rock group down the street is trying hard to lend their song Serenade the weekend squire just came out to mow his lawn Another pleasant valley sun Charcoal burning everywhere Rows of houses that are all the same And no one seems to care Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with my partner Greg Cott. And today we are talking about pop phenoms, the monkeys, with Eric Lefkowitz, author of Monkey Business, the revolutionary made-for-TV band. The Monkees were in their heyday in the late 60s with a successful TV show, hit singles, and Beatlemania-level concerts. But their influence lives on today, Eric, especially when you think about the business model and the team behind it. Bob Rafelson, Burt Schneider for TV, record producer Don Kirshner for the music end. Look at a band like the Black Eyed Peas. They reinvent themselves with the addition of Fergie or, or the success of American Idol or Glee. We have come to expect that the pop machine can spit out these perfectly formed products that hit you on multiple platforms. In the Monkey's Day, it was lunchboxes and jigsaw puzzles. Now you have apps and clothing and movies and on and on and on. This was the birth of it. This is really a capitalist success story, isn't it? It is absolutely a capitalist story. At the same time, there really is a beating heart inside of it because part of the interest in the subject for me was the fact that the four monkeys rebelled against the system. You know, it's so perfect for the 60s, you know, Mm -hmm. to have this rebellion. And they wanted to play on their records. They wanted to be authentic. They wanted to turn the uh, brand into a band. But... uh, I'm just as fascinated by the machine part of it. Really, the geniuses behind this are Bert Schneider and Bob Rapelson. Mm-hmm. They saw the bigger picture on this, and it was proven later on when they produced Easy Rider, which was made from the profits they made on the monkeys, hmm. and then, of course, they went on to other things. It is interesting how you had this juxtaposition, because we look back on it now and we think it was all about selling out and just sort of a con job in a lot of ways. But in fact, there was a lot of subversive elements in what they were doing. You look back on that television show, and it was basically four grown-up kids unsupervised by the adults. The adults were kind of the dolts, the clueless ones. That was unprecedented for primetime television. Well, we're the, we're the band. We're the band that Miss Vandersnoot hired for the party is who we are. Yeah, there must be some mistake. We were expecting four gentlemen. Uh... Would you accept four ladies who shave? I can accept anything. Wait in here, ladies. Boys with long hair, girls who shave. The world's gone to pot. No one knows who these, who's who these days. And Last Train to Clarksville is another example. It's the band's first single, and you think, pleasant little pop song. But it's an anti-war anthem. That is quite true. In fact, I heard uh, Bob Dylan talking about that song, and he says, if you want to be subversive... Never tell anybody that you're being subversive. I, I think the Monkees' theme song is also really interesting that way. They 
They sing about they're the young generation and they've got something to say. But then there's other lines about, don't worry, you know, we're just walking down the street. We're not going to hurt you. We're, we're, we're friendly guys. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. And people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. We're just trying to be friendly. Come and watch us sing and play. We're the young generation. And we've got something to say. Oh. Well, and then you've got I'm Not Your Stepping Stone, which was initially released as a B-side. Mickey Dolan sang it. Later adopted by groups like the Sex Pistols, which was eye-opening for a lot of people who who remember these four kind of harmless dudes on this TV show. Suddenly, one of their songs becomes a punk anthem. It needs to be said that the counterculture, the uh, early baby boomers, if you will, just couldn't stand the monkeys. They they represented all that was evil about business. They were taking, basically hijacking their revolutionary moment, and they couldn't stand the monkeys. And basically no credit was given to the monkeys in their own time. You know, you could look it up. But starting in the 70s, there was a revisionist attitude that began, perhaps with the Sex Pistols, but it probably began even earlier with people like Lester Bangs and people who embraced bubblegum pop music and uh, Malcolm McLaren. Or or Frank Zappa. You know, the mothers of invention do, we're only in it for the money. And then you have Zappa popping up in, in the Monkees movie. The song was pretty white. Well, so am I. What can I tell you? You've been working on your dancing, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been rehearsing it. Glad you noticed that. Yeah, it doesn't leave much time for your music. You should spend more time on it because the youth of America depends on you to show the way. Yeah? Yeah. Monkeys is the craziest people. Even though they were despised by the counterculture, all the heroes of the counterculture loved the monkeys. There's a complete disconnect. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was on their tour and... uh, Crosby and Stills, yeah, they were friends of the band. They name-checked the Monkees on Buffalo Springfield record, for example. You've got Harry Nilsson getting his first break. But to the vanguard of the counterculture, this was the worst thing possible, the Monkees. You, you visit that music with fresh ears now, and you realize that there was a lot of stuff going on there that maybe wasn't apparent the first time around. You point out that by the third album, Monkey's Headquarters, they were pretty much a self-contained group at that point. They had broken free from the Kirshner factory and were allowed to make their own records, which is a pretty bold stroke within three albums, which they were coming out lickety-split at that point, and they were trying to capitalize on this TV show. How were they able to get their freedom that quickly and, and basically make a record unsupervised? Well, the whole thing happened very fast. That's for sure. It happened within six or seven months. They went from nobodies to, you know, household names and uh, suddenly were selling five million records. And they were the hottest act on the planet at one point, I would say early 1967. 
What happened was they kept agitating, basically, for studio time to express themselves, and Don Kirshner refused to let them do it. And eventually, Kirshner was fired. They stepped in and made a record by themselves, a true do-it-yourself attempt to express themselves called Headquarters. It's not the greatest record in the world. It doesn't sound as good as some of the other Monkees records, but it's really an authentic expression of four people on TV trying to become a band, and I still think it's fascinating and worth a listen. Burning from the rising heat to find a place to hide The grass is always greener growing on the other side No time, no time, no time, no time for you listening to Sound Opinions, and we're talking about the legacy of the Monkees with writer Eric Lefkowitz. So, Eric, the Monkees are moving toward independence. It's one of the oldest stories in rock history. They're mere puppets until they get big. And then, no one knows or cares who Don Kirshner or Bob Rafelson are. You can't have the Monkees without the four faces on the album covers. They learn this, and that leads us to head. This is their 1968 feature film. They made it when the TV show was canceled, but they're at the top of their powers. They can do whatever they want. Rafelson directs it. Schneider is the executive producer. An unknown Jack Nicholson is helping them write the screenplay. To whatever extent, there is a screenplay. You look at it now, you can't really imagine that they had any plan for this. The monkeys are just running around, going ape. I mean, this makes Magical Mystery Tour look focused and concise. It is a weird movie. Yes, and it, it's quite vexing. You know, if you don't understand the context of it, you might see this movie and just tune it out after five minutes because there's some real cringe-inducing avant-garde filmmaking going on at the beginning of this film. I mean, it, truly, you just don't know where you are at any point in the film. Uh, yeah, but there's also but, the, the Porpoise song and, and Circle Sky, you know, two of the greatest tracks the monkey did. Some of the moments in this movie are some of the most brilliant moments in any rock movie by far, and I highly recommend it. I do think that you kind of almost need to understand what this movie is before you see it. If you don't know anything about the monkeys and you watch it, you really couldn't figure it out anything out. I mean, it just goes from scene to scene to scene, like a pinball, you know, <laughs> bouncing around. But some of those scenes are just flat out amazing. And it's, you know, it's funny. It's trippy. It's uh, weird. Oh, <laughs> this is not one of your standard brands. Oh, an El Zumo. Imagine having to smoke that whole thing. Smoking may be hazardous to your health. You yeah, see that, but... Davey? Davey? Where's Davey? Hey, Davey? 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 Hey, Davey? 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 
they're having fun at their own expense. They don't come across as necessarily the most attractive people at the end of this movie. So here's this cuddly pop group basically undermining everything that had made it a tremendous success. Do you believe that was intentional on the part of the four individual monkeys, or was that something that just came about because of ineptness? That's a good question. I mean, you wonder if Jack Nicholson encouraged them to kind of rip the scab off and expose themselves because they don't come off as likable at all in the movie. Of course, that's the polar opposite of the TV show when they're the heroes. So uh, it's a good question about exactly what was the attention here. I think had really hurt their careers. I mean, it tanked their careers. It, It was career suicide. Basically, nobody saw it. It barely opened up. And then Ravelson and Schneider and Nicholson, they all went on to huge things. And none of the monkeys really ever did anything that artistically credible afterwards. You can argue that, you know, Michael Nesmith certainly made some interesting country rock records and had a hand in the creation of MTV. And they're all, you know, able performers. But heads seemed to really tank their careers. There's some implications in your book, too, Eric, that Ravelson and Schneider did this intentionally. I believe it's true. I believe that Rafelson and Schneider basically admitted as much. I don't think the monkeys themselves knew. And when I wrote my first book, I went into that. And I understand, you know, I got some interesting feedback that they were uh, surprised to read that Rafelson and Schneider intended to basically blow up their careers with this movie. I mean, what's the intention of making a movie that costs a million dollars and tanking this uh, multi-million dollar phenomenon? You have to wonder. And I believe that Rafelson and Schneider just wanted to wash their hands of it and go on to do other things in their life. And the truth is they really never lent those guys a hand afterwards. I think that's a shame. They were kind of orphaned after being swept up in this great tumult. You know, suddenly they're just kicked to the curb. Well, you actually, Eric, are kinder to monkeys' reunion efforts than uh, than some people might be. I mean, I, now, now don't get me wrong. I treasure my monkeys' records. I, I will champion Head. I've seen that movie a, a half a dozen times, and I love it. I don't want to see the monkeys in 2011, especially without Michael Nesmith. And yet it looks like I'm going to have the chance yet again. Is there any value in seeing them again today? Um, I was there when the four of them took the stage in 86, and I would argue with you, Jim, there. I, for like 10 minutes, it was really just so exciting to see the four of them. Nesmith only played a couple of songs on stage, mm-hmm. but people were screaming their heads off. It was, you know, I'd never seen it, you know, personally. Like, a, it was almost a, just a moment out of Beatlemania there. But, of course, it was very, very brief. And uh, there is something sad about, you know, the aging pop star. The truth is they're really not as interesting without each other as they are together. Well, that's an interesting lesson because uh, you look at the lessons of the monkeys, how they've been repeated over the decades. You know, we talked about the Sex Pistols and Malcolm McLaren. I mean, the Sex Pistols in reality are really the monkeys in a lot of ways in terms of the way their career went up and down and imploded almost instantly. You look at NSYNC, the Backstreet Boys, all these manufactured pop groups of recent decades and the Svengali figures behind them, the whole idea of cross-marketing. Is it a legacy to be proud of? Because that seems to be where the monkey's legacy is now. Well, I think you have to look at the monkeys two ways. You know, one as a band of people, individuals who actually made music and made head and did the TV shows. And then you have to look at the marketing angle, you know, the product. Is it something to be proud of? It's hard to say. How about Gorillas? you know, Damon Albarn's band, uh, mm-hmm. Gorillas, which it seems to, the very name Gorillas evokes the monkeys. 
I'm I'm a fan. I think I think they're very interesting. Oh, they're um, brilliant. Yeah. There w- was a certain inevitability to all of this that someone was going to put these pieces together and do it this way. The Monkees are probably the, one of the most influential groups in in the history of pop music. I think that's fair to say. What their exact legacy is more difficult to pinpoint, but uh, they loom very large. It's amazing how many concentric circles connect to this phenomenon. Could hide neath the wings of the bluebird as she sings. The six o'clock alarm would never ring, but it rings and I rise, wipe the sleep out of my eyes. My shaven razor's cold and it stings. Eric Lefkowitz is the author of Monkey Business, the revolutionary made-for-TV band. Eric, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you very much, Jim and Greg. Thanks. To share your beliefs and daydreams on the air, call 888-859-1800. Coming up, Greg and I will review the new albums by British singer PJ Harvey and Southern rockers The Drive-By Truckers. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Cheer up, sleepy Jean. Oh, what can it mean to a daydream believer and a homecoming queen? Cheer up, sleepy Jean. Oh, what can it mean to a Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that is P.J. Harvey with the title track from her eighth studio album, Let England Shake. Holly Jean Harvey, a country girl out of Dorset, England, uh, came out like gangbusters in the early 90s with a series of albums, Dry, 
Rid of Me, the psychodrama of To Bring You My Love, an amazing artist. You know, consider that this was the era of Riot Girl and alternative rock in, in America in the early 90s. And here was Polly Harvey as the British response in some ways to that, raising the ante quite a bit. She grew up in a hippie household. Her parents had an incredible record collection. And uh, she was raised on Captain Beefheart and Nick Cave and Bob Dylan as mainstream artists. And she was bringing a lot of that literary substance to her music. She's had a two-decade career, notable for the fact that she has never stood still. She has never repeated herself. Her recent albums have thrown some of her longtime fans for a loop. Her 2007 album, White Shock, she abandoned her guitar almost completely and composed most of that record on piano. Now, for her new album, Let England Shake, again, the guitar has been relegated to a background role and instead made the auto harp the focus of her instrumental attack. We're going to play a track from Let England Shake right now, and then we're going to review it. It's called Written on the Forehead from PJ Harvey on Sound Opinions. Holly Jean Harvey with two of her frequent collaborators, Mick Harvey and John Parrish. The song is called Written on the Forehead from the new album, Let England Shake. Oh, Greg, as rock critics, sometimes we toss around the word pretension. And it's a dangerous word. Let's face it, no artist gets anywhere and does anything creative without having aspirations to do something of some ambition. 
There have been times when we've praised Pretension, a Decemberist concept album, or Lamb Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis, okay? And there are other times when you just kind of sneer and say, that's pretentious, as in like Tales from Topographic Oceans by Yes, okay? (laughs) This album by PJ Harvey is pretentious in all the worst ways. She is trying to make a record about the human costs of war by referencing history, in particular going back to Gallipoli in 1915, the, the slaughter of that assault during World War I, there are references also to great Napoleonic battles. This should be pushing both of our buttons. Mm-hmm. I know you read a lot of military history, so do I. I'm a history buff. But I hate this record. And why does it fail? Not because of the idea of what do the wars of the past say about the current conflicts today, but because P.J. Harvey doesn't sound like P.J. Harvey. She has changed her approach to singing. There's this little girl winsomeness in her voice. The songs are not nearly as strong as P.J. Harvey at her best. This is an artist. I have loved every move she has ever made. I have championed the detours she has taken, the, the, the kind of instrumental, largely, record she's made with John Parrish. Here, everything fails, though. She is an expert at inhabiting characters and bringing them to life, getting out of herself and bringing these other people to life. And she is an expert at setting mood. And she doesn't do either of those things here in what would seem to have been the golden invitation. I mean, what does she know what it's like to be stuck on a beach in World War I and everybody around you is dying? But she, she brings no empathy or no insight into that character. Buy it, burn it, trash it. I, I never thought the day would come when I am saying, don't buy this no matter <laughs> what you do. This is a trash it record from PJ Harvey. Well, I'm not nearly as let down as you are, Jim, but it is a disappointment for me as well. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons for it. One, the tone that you mentioned. I think the perspective has shifted. You know, it used to be a lot of first-person stuff. Those first-person psychodramas, I love the fact that she was living it as she was telling it, whereas this is more third-person. There's a sort of a remove there. There's also a remove in the sense of the music. It's all sort of middle distance and vague and not really well-defined, you know, creating this atmosphere, almost like she's dreaming. That little girl voice, kind of annoying. Some of the samples, woo. I think she almost overthought some of this stuff. I'm not sure that 50s novelty hit, Istanbul, not Constantinople, that she uses in Let England Shake. I understand why it's there. You know, it's kind of a yeah. kind of a reference to the Gallipoli campaign. But it's annoying. Tapped out on that xylophone, it doesn't seem like it belongs there. What, that, what about the bugle call that, that gets dropped in? That song? is the absolute worst. The out-of-tune bugle on the glorious land. Why is it here? There are very few rock songs on this record. The ones that work, though, make it salvageable for me. I think the song that we just played, Written on the Forehead, really works. There's some beautiful writing there, a beautiful atmosphere that she creates, but there's just not enough of it on this record. I'm going to give it a burn it. He packed a big-ass church out near Rogersville. He drove the Cadillac, she drove the Oldsmobile. That is the drive-by truckers with the title track from their new album, Go-Go Boots, on Sound Opinions. Greg, we've been remiss. It's been a long time since we talked about the drive-by truckers here on the show. They're one of those bands you can take for granted. They have been going for a very long time. This is their 10th studio 
album. And they have covered a lot of ground. You know, you have a record like Gangsta Billy. That was their debut in 1998. At the height of the gangster movement, <laughs> we're coming out with this three-guitar attack of Southern Rock. Or, you know, the Southern Rock Opera, which was exactly that. This wildly ambitious double-disc concept album. The consistent thread through all of it has been frontman Patterson Hood. A bunch of players have come and gone, most of them Georgia and Alabama natives, but the band keeps going. And here on this record, Go Go Boots, Patterson seems to have kind of positioned it as the companion to the last release, The Big To Do. On that one, he turned up the guitars again and went for a real in-your-face sound. On this one, he said, if the last record was an action movie, way over the top and all movement all the time, the next record is going to be a film noir. He said he wanted to make an album of R&B murder ballads. Did he succeed? Did he fail? We'll give our opinions on Go-Go Boots in a minute. But first, let's hear a track. This is the Thanksgiving Filter by the Drive-By Truckers on Sound Opinions. Thanksgiving filter from the drive-by truckers on Sound Opinions. The new album is called Go-Go Boots. Jim, you're absolutely right. We do tend to take this band for granted. Ho-hum, another good drive-by truckers (laughs) album. They are incredibly consistent, and the reason for it is they've got two terrific songwriters in the band. They once had three with uh, Jason Isbell, but he's since left. But with Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley, they've got two of the best songwriters working today. We are talking about scene-setting detail and character development that a novelist would envy. And the focus is very much on those lyrics and those stories. We are talking about small-town, blue-collar life. These guys don't sneer at it. They empathize with it. They understand what these characters are going through. They're deeply flawed, but they understand them. 
we were talking about the double life of that preacher in the title song. We're talking, uh, that's killer. Yeah, you know, talking about the war veteran and Ray's automatic weapon, or that dead end drifter and uh, used to be a cop. I mean, these are very these are characters everybody can relate to. It, it does have that mood. It does have that deep, dark kind of mid tempo mood going on. Very much acoustic, soul, and country influenced record. But for me, Jim, the real a revelation on this record comes right in the middle of it. They cover a couple of tunes by this old Southern soul singer, Eddie Hinton. And Patterson Hood, who's not the world's greatest singer necessarily, does a terrific job with this song called Everybody Needs Love, a Hinton cover, yeah. in the middle of the record. And it sort of redeems all the bad blood in the rest of the record. And, and I love this record for that reason. Again, another great drive-by Truckers album for me. It's a buy-it for me. I'll agree, absolutely. This is a buy-it record. And I tell you, if you haven't listened to the drive-by Truckers in a while, go back, get this album, get the last one. They do make a wonderful set, you know, the upbeat rock and roll and the moody dark soul. What's more, I'll tell you, all these people who are loving the Kings of Leon these days mm. with their kind of vague Leonard Skinner meets U2 bombast, boy, you want... Southern rock done right. Go to the drive-by truckers. I can't get enough of this album. So that is a double buy it for the drive-by truckers and a trash it for PJ Harvey from me and a burn it from Greg. What do we have on the show next week, GK? Next week, Jim, we have the founding members of the singular UK post-punk band, The Gang of Four, in for an interview. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. A special nod to Tammy Turwelp and our production team, new intern Nick Myers. He is kind of the uh, Peter Tork of Sound Opinions. <laughs> our producer, Jason Saldana, he's the Michael Nesmith. Our other producer, Robin Lynn, she's Davy Jones, so lovable. And our executive <laughs> producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia. He's the Mickey. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, guys. This is Mary calling from Chicago. I loved your unrequited Valentine's show. However, I do have a comment on your Spider-Man Broadway musical. I thought that Broadway openings were kind of like restaurants in the fact that you wait two weeks after they open for the critics to actually release their critiques. And since it's probably about a month before they open, a lot can happen in that month. So I don't think that the comments that, you know, people are paying good money for $300 seats and they should know ahead of time if the show is good or bad is actually quite correct. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey, Jim and Greg. Oh, my name is Jane. I'm from Mill Valley, California. And your last show on Valentine's Day was terrific. My favorite unrequited love song is impossible by the shout out louds if you just listen to that music oh it just brings you back or me back 
to my teenage years, 16 Candles meets Pretty in Pink, all that new wavy music. It's so good. Anyway, keep on doing what you're doing. It's awesome. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Dan Sullivan calling from the west side of Chicago. My pick for greatest unrequited love song would be Billie Holiday's version of Glad to be Unhappy. People are probably more familiar with Frank Sinatra's version on We Small Hours than Billie's version. They're more heartbreaking and nuanced, in my opinion. Unrequited love's a boy And I've got it pretty bad But for someone you adore, it's a pleasure to be sad. It really sounds like she's smiling through the tears when she sings Unrequited Love's a Bore, and I've got it pretty bad. But when it's someone you adore, it's a pleasure to be sad. Check it out. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Mike from Doylestown, Pennsylvania. And I was just listening to the uh, Unrequited Love Songs episode, and I thought that was really good. But there was one that I think you missed, which I think is a great Unrequited Love Song. Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach writing, I Still Have the Other Girl. I have to say that we should finish it now. Great song about a guy who knows he can't go any further because of the other relationship. Sorry you guys missed on that one. Bye-bye. Hey, how you doing? It's Scott calling from Chicago area. Just wanted to weigh in on a couple of things. I just listened to your Valentine's Day show. We had a caller that said, talked about the uh, Dire Straits tune, Romeo and Juliet. And while I would agree that that's a great tune, I think that this is one of the cases where a cover of the tune is much, much better. I would check out the Indigo Girls doing that one. All I do is miss you and the way it used to be, you know. And all I do is keep the beats. I keep bad, bad company. And all I do is kiss you through the bars of this rhyme when Julie the stars with you and it's time Juliet. Just my two cents. Love the show. Keep up uh, fighting the good fight and doing the good work. Thanks. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. The time was wrong. Julie